And that is a great prayer for us as we start the new year. I lay down my life. Not, you know, we, we sing that song not infrequently at the time of offering. It reminds us that though we are giving money, which seems so precious to the world, that really it's a small thing and it's just a, a token of giving our lives to Him and surrendering all. So I hope that's what you do in 2020 and that that makes a great blessing for you. Now today, uh, for our time of Bible study, I've asked Errol to come and I, I just wanted to introduce this guy to you, Errol, our new chairman of the deacons there. Yeah, co-chairman of the deacons. That's… <laughs> he, he wants to keep emphasizing co, co. So we give a shout out to Dave Bruce too, who's co-ing with him. But I've asked him to read for us today from the New International Version. So if you're using the Pew Bibles, they're the new revised standards, so it's slightly different. The New International has a great emphasis that we're focusing on today, so I want you to pay attention. But I also want you to keep your Bible open if you want, because we'll be returning to that throughout the, the time of the Bible study this morning, and also to be aware that we'll be sharing at the end of our service today in a wonderful time of communion as God's people. So Errol, get us started, and then we will dive into the study of the Word. Thank you, Eddie. Um, as Eddie said, I'll be reading from the NIV version. You guys are welcome to follow along in your pew Bibles or also on the screens directly behind me. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and that's on page 783 in the pew Bible. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. A great close to the Christmas season scripture. This is the Sunday of the Epiphany for the wise men. We wanted our children to go on out to Children's Church. Having heard that scripture, knowing that today is the day where we mark the wise men in particular, 
Most of you are aware from the story of Christmas that although that they get depicted on the front of the Christmas cards and everything that we put, and you see them with the shepherds and the angels and everything else, that in when you read the Bible story, it's quite clear. They come a couple of years later. We believe it's two years after the actual birth of Christ. So it's a part of the process, the journey of the coming of the Christ, and we're going to be studying that passage today. So kids, have a great time this morning. All right, very good. Hey, let me ask you a quick question. You don't have to all shout it out or anything because you could get in trouble if you're here with more than one family member, but what was the best gift you received this year at Christmas? You know, think about that for a second. What was your best gift? Or maybe I could say in, in this past year, I, I've told you guys that 2020, because of its connection to our vision, right, 2020, I'm sure that in this church and many others around the nation, that throughout the year you'll be hearing sermons and talks and encouragement about clarifying your vision and know where you're going. Most of you who are in the church family are aware that happened for me in a new way this year. Uh, my Christmas gift that was given last spring, because it was a big one, was to give me new vision. After suffering from cataracts, having that removed, and not just having cataract repair, but installing this thing they call a multifocal infinity focus lens. And so for the first time in my life since last May, I've been seeing 2020, which is crazy when you've been as blind as a bat your whole life like I have. So my best gift in the year of 2019 was corrective vision, getting to see better. And I was thinking about seeing and thinking about great gifts, and then I thought, hmm, what about bad gifts? Do you know a bad gift when you see it? Yeah, most of us do. We get the, uh, <laughs> it's kind of our reaction. What is it that makes a gift not a good gift? What is it that makes a, a bad gift? And, and I would suggest this so as to relieve any purchasing pressure. It's not really the gift itself that makes a bad gift, is it? I mean, most of the time, that, most of us, it's, it's not about what the thing is. It's about the person who gave us the gift what we perceive from them in terms of attitude. If we know, and how many of you, boy, if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You got those ugly paperweights your kids made for you when they were in like third grade, and they bring it to you, and what do you say? Oh, honey, thank you, it's beautiful. Well, Christmas is the same way. You get a gift from a kid, you get a gift from a spouse, you get a gift from a friend that's not really what you had in mind, but you're in a great relationship with them. You know, it doesn't matter that much. You're just kind of grateful for the attitude and the thoughtfulness and the care. And so even if it's not exactly what you want, matter of fact, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of touching in a strange way when you think about it. Those, I still today have a lot of those items in my office at home, in my office here, in, in my bedroom, things that the kids made handwritten cards, ashtrays, which why would you give that to a non-smoking person? Uh, <laughs> gifts, good gifts, bad gifts. Because you're right, if, if somebody gives you a gift, but you know they've got a terrible attitude, you know there's really a lot of insincerity in it. Maybe they drew your name out of a hat, and you know they're kind of your... They're kind of your nemesis in the office, 
and they drew your name in the white elephant gift. And not only is it a useless gift, but you kind of perceive the attitude that came with it because it brings the spirit of the gift. And, and I tell you those stories about good gifts and bad gifts just to kind of bring out this point. It's not really the gift itself. It's about the person behind the gift. People are, in a sense, the gift that they give. Because whatever the gift is, if they're the one giving it and you're in a good, it's good. If you're not in a good relationship with them, it doesn't help a whole lot. So that really begins to make me think then, well, with all the gifts that we gave this year, or think of it this way. You might say, well, that's past. What can I do about it? All right, all the gifts you're going to give this year. Maybe you gave some cards to be fulfilled at Christmas time, soon to come. Or maybe you've got a birthday person coming up. Maybe there are anniversaries or other celebrations you're going to be marking. How can you give a great gift? Which asks the question, how can you be a great giver? Because the gift is about the person. How can you be the great giver? Because you are the real gift beyond any physical gift. You can describe a gift as thoughtful, unique, and generous, but really it's about coming from you. And how do you do that? With Especially you think about Christmas, all the pressure, all the number of requests that come your way, and you know it should be given with thoughtfulness and uniqueness and care and all that, and love should be behind all of it. But how easy is that with all the hustle and the bustle and the pressures and all the stuff that come with Christmas and with life? And so I ask you again to consider, how can you, how can I be the real gift at Christmas time and beyond? Beyond the gift itself to us, beyond what we actually have to give. And I think the answer to that question really lies in looking back at the very first Christmas to the folks who actually gave gifts. The wise men, or the magi, as we sometimes call them, who brought these gifts to Mary and Joseph in the narrative birth story of Jesus. A gift given to honor the birth of the new king, the birth of the Christ, And it's ironic a bit that the people we use to teach us about gift-giving to the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, may not have even been Jewish at all. doesn't appear that they were. They were, in fact, from people that were far away. They're a combination of astrologers, priests from Persia is an interpretation that has been given. They took their cues from the night sky, the planets and the stars, to try to figure out and make predictions. And you see, by virtue of being that kind of a wise man, of being an astrologer, that already put them at odds with the Israelites, with the Jews, because it was considered kind of magic. It was considered kind of hocus-pocus. It was considered dabbling your hands into things that were God's business. So the Jews generally stood apart from people who practiced astrology. They gave them the stink eye, you know, when they looked at them. They didn't want anything to do with them. Funny how the Christmas story is full of those people, the stinky shepherds, 
the weird wise men, all these people that were considered outsiders. It's ironic that with the coming of the Messiah, that it's these foreigners who actually gave gifts at Christmas, not just because of what they gave, but of the kind of givers they were. They're kind of these mysterious people in the story that we just heard from Matthew 2 a moment ago. There's not a lot of information about who they are. It's that passage that you heard, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. That's all there is about the wise men, folks. So what does that mean if we want to learn from them? Well, it better mean that we study up. There's a need for scholarship and for Bible historians, and there have been a lot of theories put forward over the years. So I decided today, instead of me trying to shift into that mode, I was going to invite one of our church's Bible scholar teachers. So Audrey, come on up here. Audrey Lupicella is our special pulpit partner guest this morning. She taught our small group seminars last fall. Audrey has a book out called Impartial. That's a study of the the book of Acts or the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. So she's a great study uh, uh, person of the Bible herself, which is what makes her into a great teacher of the Bible. When we were talking, I mentioned the wise men a few weeks ago in a sermon. Afterwards, she came up and she said, hey, have you ever heard about the Nabataean theory? Now, having a PhD, I've learned you never say, oh, no. You say, well, sure, I'm I'm sure I've run across it somewhere, but why don't you refresh me? So actually what I asked her to do was to come back today and refresh all of us. So Audrey, welcome to the pulpit. Let's welcome her here. Good morning. Um, I am a student of the Bible, and um, I'm a student of the Bible because I love to learn, and being a student of the Bible means learning is limitless. Um, There's always something new to learn. And you have to be an expert in many fields to even approach understanding the text. So there's always something more to learn. And I am quite the nerd. If you ever get to talk to me, it's kind of hard to shut me up about it. So I apologize in the future, just saying. Um, So our text today is Matthew 2, 1 through 12, as we have just heard. And we have heard about the Magi um, in our Christmas skit. It was so beautifully done. If you were here, you were blessed by the incredible skit that was done talking about one of the most prevalent theories about who these Magi were and that they were Zoroastrians, I can't even say the word, from Persia. And that is definitely a widely accepted theory. But Bible scholars, like every scholar, They love to argue. And so I am here to present one of the other theories about who these people might have been. And so we are going to look at some of these clues. If you would like to put up Matthew 2, 1 verses 1 through 2, or keep your Bible open to read it on the screen. So we can look at some of these clues together about who they might have been. And so we are going to look at the first word. The first clue is magi. This word magi, I guess it's verse 2. It is verse one, but they use wise men, which is yet another translation because the Greek word is magi. And so, of course, you get all these different translational issues and it could be different things. But one of the most wide definitions of magi is the possessor and user of supernatural knowledge and ability. That is the basic Greek definition of the magi. So it can be termed wise men. Obviously, we also use magi. And what this means, by the first century AD, the term had the connotations of a sorcerer or a divination specialist. And what makes this kind of muddled is that 
every religion outside of Judaism had divination specialists. So it's a very broad term and could be applied to anybody. So it's not a really helpful clue in of itself. The most important piece of information we're given, however, is where they're from. Matthew says they're from the East. Now you gotta think about when you are looking at the Bible, the perspective of the author. And most of the authors are writing from what we understand today as modern day Israel. And so East to them is consistently in the Bible talking about people and lands across the Jordan River, where we consider modern-day Jordan. This is a, a great example of this is in Judges 6.10, if you want to throw that on the screen, where northern Israel is being attacked by a group of people, and this is the story of Gideon. And so these people, it says in 6.10 that the Amorites... This is a different translation. The Amorites and the Midianites and other peoples from the east are coming and attacking them. Then we move to 633, and it says, now all the Midianites, there it is, and the Amalekites and the people of the east come together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Israel. Do you hear it? It's written from people on the east for on the west side of the Jordan River, talking about people coming in from the east and across. This is repeated consistently throughout Genesis, throughout Deuteronomy, Judges as we've just read, the prophets, they all consider people from the east to be from what we consider modern day Jordan and down even into Saudi Arabia, which brings us to a map. When you study the Bible, Maps are so important because the biblical writers look for patterns. And the patterns of where people come from tell them about something important. So we're going to look at a couple maps today. Our first map is showing us, if you can see it, the Amalekites, where they are from, the southern Negev. Can you say Negev? I like Hebrew words. They're fun to say, so we're going to repeat a few today. And the Midianites, way down in the south, towards the Red Sea. This is where these people are from. The people that Judges considers to be from the east. They team up together, go up by the Red Sea, and cross over into the Jezreel Valley, again up in the north. So this tells us that Matthew, who clearly knew the Hebrew text, He's saying they're from the east. The east in the Bible is Arabia. It's really, really interesting. And when you look in opposite, when you look at the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, consistently, they're talking about Assyria, Persia, and Babylon. They're talking about the north. They say the kings of the north. Matthew knows who he's talking about. And he says the east. Another interesting clue. And so who could these have been? And from this time, um, keep this map in your mind, we're going to another map. In the first century, they were the Nabataeans. From the exact same place that Judges says is the east. To further this evidence, Justin Martyr, who was a first century Christian theologian, born in 100 AD in Samaria, repeats this, repeatedly says in his dialogue with Trypho that the Magi were explicitly from Arabia. 
This is repeated with Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, other second century Christian theologians. Interesting. So the Nabataeans, another clue we have, they were from the east, they were magi, and they brought him what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Nabataeans, as you can see, they controlled pretty much the entire desert area. And this is where the spice trade was. This is where the frankincense trade was. This is where the myrrh trade was. They controlled all of it. The Nabataeans by 100 BC had complete control of the highways, which, which brought in all of these things. If you would, yet another map. I know I'm throwing lots of maps at you, get excited. I can see it in your eyes. The dark blue, this is a map of the entire Middle East in the first century, and the dark blue trade routes were all Nabataean controlled. Pliny the Elder, yet another fancy person for you, he was a Jewish theologian that lived from 23 to 79 AD, said by the third century, the Nabataeans had become such an integral part of trade routes that they could not be avoided not by the Greeks, not by the Romans. Not only did they control all of the land you see there, the trade routes there, but they learned from the Greeks how to sail. And so they became the pirates of the Red Seas, which brought in the Chinese from Sri Lanka and India, all the spices and all the wealth. They controlled it. Couldn't avoid the Nabataeans. And so they were able to control these trade routes because again, this is all desert area places that were unlivable, places that no one else could navigate because they had a special set of skills. Much like sailors, I had a professor that said, the Nabataeans sailed the deserts like sailors sailed the seas. Because sailors have to have a special set of skills to sail, right? They have to know how to navigate. They have to be able to have water and food and um, provisions for their journey. The Nabataeans were the same way. They lived and thrived in the desert, and high desert, where there is no food, there is no water. Yet, if you would throw up the pictures of Petra, who's heard of Petra? This is the Nabataean capital, Petra. They lived in the middle of the desert, and if you would show the next slide, they had pipes that brought in fresh water, so they had running water in the middle of the desert. They had a special set of skills that allowed them to control the wealth of the world. Not only that, but in this desert area, much like the sea, it all kind of looks the same. How did they navigate the desert? By stars. They were stargazers, they were star readers. There's a story, Kenneth Bailey, he's a great Christian scholar. He has a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and he records a story given to him. I see you laughing. He knows me so well, just laughing at the nerdery. He records a story by E.F.F. Bishop, a British scholar who told him about an encounter that he had with some Bedouin tribes in Jordan in the 1920s. The Bedouins are just a modern name for the nomadic Arabic tribes that roamed the deserts of the Middle East. Um, and so he was among these Bedouin tribes in Jordan in the 1920s, and this is the story he says. This Muslim tribe, 
that Bishop encountered, bore the Arabic name Al-Kokhavani. The word Kokhav means planet, and Al-Kokhavani means those who study and follow the planets. Bishop asked the elders of the tribe why they called themselves by such a name, and they replied that it was because their ancestors followed the planets and traveled west into Palestine to honor the great prophet Jesus at his birth in Bethlehem. They were star followers. They watched the stars. They saw the stars, and it led them to the Messiah. Now, you might ask, again, I'm a nerd. I thrive on this stuff. But you might be asking, who cares? And that's okay. I'm about to tell you. I'm going to finish with this messianic prophecy out of Isaiah 60, verses 5 through 6. And he says, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian, of Ephah, all those from Shavah shall come. They will bring gold and frankincense. They will bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Does this sound familiar? Yes, it does. These international merchants traveling by camel caravan from the lands of Midian, bringing gold, frankincense, and the wealth of the nations. They came to Bethlehem declaring the good news. This phrase in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible is recorded as evangelion. The exact same word we translate in the New Testament as the gospel. These desert traders came proclaiming the gospel. What was Matthew trying to tell us with these details? The gospel was here. Messiah was here. Are you watching? Do you see him? Will you follow? the signs God gives you, that you may likewise see the Messiah, kneel at his feet, and give him your gifts. Thank you. Cool, huh? That's, it's so intriguing to consider. It's one of the things you've got to really be grateful for uh, people like Audrey, our Bible school teachers, our Sunday school teachers, our small group leaders, our seminary professors, people who labor to bring the background of the Bible to life for us, and which reminds us that it's always about continued learning. We never have it all figured out. We're used to singing these songs about the three wise men and all they do, and we, we don't even know that there are three, right? We, we think there are three because there are three gifts could have been two with three gifts, could have been five with three gifts, we don't know, could have been 20, we don't really know. We, we think it's kind of convenient, three gifts, three guys, voila, three wise men. But let's look at what happens with these folks, right? They come to Israel, they go looking for the Messiah, and they make it to the palace, and you wonder, how do they make it to the palace if there are these guys, these Nabataeans, or if they're wise men from Persia, how, how do they make it to the king's court? 
Well, of course, you have to remember, Herod doesn't really belong as the king either, right? He's kind of a usurper. He's kind of weaseled his way in through a lot of wheeling and dealing and different things. He knows he's not the legitimate king, and he's worried about new kings. So when he hears this hubbub, he wants to know what's going on. So they make it in to meet him. And they've come because they were in the east. They see this new star in the night sky. And you might think, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's always, you know, there's a star shower, there's a comet here, a comet there. But you have to remember that in the ancient world, the connection between what they perceived to be a new star was quite often connected to the idea of a new king coming. There was a first century Roman historian named Tacitus. He said during the reign of Nero, the general belief is that a comet means a change in emperor is coming. These were the people who were the educated, the powerful of their day. So it was a important event. And the wise men had seen, the wise men had noticed something that evidently no one else in Israel had bothered noticing, a sign of the birth of a new king, the birth of God's historically unique and anointed king who would rescue his people, the Mashiach, the Messiah, who has now come, the one they had supposedly been waiting for all these years, but they weren't watching. They weren't looking, most of these folks. Now, if you're Herod, of course, a, a, a star, a symbol of a new king is a sign of trouble because that, if, if you're the current king and that's the sign of a new king, mm, this is not good news to you. It's not euangelion to you. It's not the good news. It's not the gospel. It's bad news. So Herod, he wants to hear what these guys have to say, but not with a good motive. You, you need to remember about Herod. Herod. Herod was known to whack people in his own family. So he's not going to give up his throne to anyone, much less to some supposed new king. When his own sons look like rivals, he took them out. So he's not looking for somebody rightly born in the line of the kings of Israel. He's not looking to God's appointed messianic one to come and take his place. He's worked too hard to get there. So he wants these wise men to work for him and kind of clue him in. And you know how they were warned to go back a different way. They didn't inform Herod of where it was, but he learned all he could from them. He learned about the birth date. When you wonder why he slaughtered the innocent children, he calculated from them what they had told him about when the star first appeared and worked his way backwards. And he put out the word for the slaughter of all those who were born in that time, all the boys who could take his place as king. Herod, he's a, he's a dangerous one. So when the wise men then find Jesus, they bow in respect to this new king. They give the gifts befitting a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as you saw prophesied centuries earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Gold and frankincense, that fragrant gum, myrrh, the fragrant spice, a perfume from Arabia. Now, here's what's weird. You got these whether they're from Persia or the Nabataeans or whatever, these wise men from the east, these magi, no matter where you think they're from, here's what we know. They're from the east. And once you cross the Jordan River, if you're a Jew, those folks are the outsiders. 
So here's the weird deal. God sends the Jewish Messiah, and who does God appoint to the welcoming committee? The outsiders. The foreigners. I mentioned earlier the shepherds who were considered unclean, those from within Israel, and now the wise men from outside of Israel. There was the passage from Isaiah 60 you heard a few minutes ago. Here's one from Psalm 72. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. These are all prophecies about the Messiah that we see being fulfilled in the wise men. And then, as quickly as they've come onto the scene, off they go. They've been given insider information by God in a dream. We never see or hear from them again, and that's the wise men's part in the story of Christmas and the birth narrative of Jesus. But let's go back to how we started today, because here's what I wanted you to notice. Did, did you see it? Did you catch it? Did you catch what set the wise men apart? Do you catch what they're doing, what no one else was doing that enabled them to be indeed the first gift at the first Christmas? Now, to get the answer to that, that's Kind of obvious, but kind of hidden. It's kind of the surprise in the story that's put right in front of your face. You remember those magic vision books that you used to look at, and you had to stare at the blur and 3D until you could finally see the thing in it? I could never do that. My vision was too bad. It, it, it messed me up. It's kind of like that we look at the Christmas story. There's this blur of stuff we don't always see clearly. you got to look for the surprise. Matter of fact, I'll tell you this. It's quite often true in the Bible. That if you want to get the main point of the story, you have to look for the surprise that's coming. And here's the surprise that comes that is the actual point. It's that the wise men see. And if you look, if you still got your Bible open to Matthew 2, 1 through 12, how many times the variation of the verb see is present? They saw his star in the east. They went to see where the baby lay. When they had seen, they returned a different way. It occurs over and over again. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. They were actually seeing. You know why they were seeing? because they were actually looking. They were looking. The wise men again and again see what nobody else is seeing because nobody else is looking, and they are looking. It's kind of a surprise if you think about it because let's think about it this way. If you were reading along, you've got some familiarity with the Bible story, and you're thinking, who should have been the odds-on favorites to know where the Messiah was going to be born? Well, it should have been the biblical scribes, right? The Jewish priests, the, the ones who, who knew. Later they came, oh yeah, Bethlehem, oh yeah, they figured that out and told her. Let me ask you this, if you're a scholar, a Jewish scholar, and you're wait people have been waiting centuries for the Messiah, where are you camping out? If you know that the city is Bethlehem, you're camping out in Bethlehem. But, you know, oddly enough, they're not in Bethlehem. They're not looking at Bethlehem. They're not looking at the star. They're not looking for the Messiah at all. They know, 
But the scribes, the teachers who taught them to others, no, no, they weren't looking. Another good bet would have been Herod, right? You would have thought Herod, being vaguely aware at least of the Scriptures, knows who to ask. He has all these scribes working for him. He's the one who's worried about threats to his power. Why isn't he watching? Why doesn't he have a special select committee on messianic affairs? Why aren't they watching for the Messiah? I mean, I can understand if Herod says, I don't want to spend my time. You'd think he'd at least appoint a team of people from within his administration to keep an eye on this thing. But he couldn't be bothered. He wasn't looking. The long shot in the story is these wise men, these foreigners, these outsiders. The long shot to be looking for the Messiah, much less actually seeing and finding him. If you go on the grounds of self-interest, they are the least likely people in the story to be looking for this Messiah of Israel, but they are the only ones looking and seeing. They were the only ones who bothered to be actually looking. Now, you see, what's taking place here in the Bible story is kind of like the infamous selective attention test conducted by Harvard University. I think I told this story once years ago. It, it, maybe you've heard it. Maybe you're aware of it. It's a, it's a very well-known story, true story, about the invisible gorilla. Does that ring a bell, the invisible gorilla story? It was a test done at Harvard, and what they did was they put together a video of some folks in white t-shirts and folks in black t-shirts and gave them some basketballs to pass back and forth, okay? And they asked people, we want you to come in and watch the video and, and you see how many times the people pass the ball back and forth between the white shirts. Don't be distracted by the black shirts, just watch the white shirts and count the number of passes, you could get a, a, a valuable prize. So they put together this video. In the middle of the video comes out a guy in a gorilla suit. And he kind of wreaks havoc in the middle of all this, wanders off, just wanders through right in the middle of the video. They get to the end, and they ask, how many passes did the people in the white shirts pass? number of people got that right. Did you notice anything unusual in the video? Half did not recall ever seeing a gorilla. 50%. How do you miss a gorilla in the middle of a basketball game? Because they weren't looking. It's amazing what you can miss if you are not looking. But if you're looking, even if you're the least likely of people, you just might see something very special. I want to encourage you in 2020 to be looking. Because I believe if you are looking for what God is doing, you will see things that will absolutely blow your mind. When you look for opportunities, you see, you want, why does that person get to do this? Why does that do that? Because God opens doors, but you have to see the doors. And to see the doors, you have to be looking. Family of God, actually looking for what God is doing is what separates people who respond to God from those who do not respond to Him because they are not looking. They are not seeing. 
Again and again, the Bible uses that image to talk about those who follow and those who don't. Can you not see? Have you not heard? My invitation to you, 2020, look for God. See God. See your life changed by God. If you are actually looking, then what you will be able to see, (laughs) the ultimate end of the thing, is that you'll be able to see this baby, the Messiah, someone you'll be able to see that you can embrace, Christ the King who was laid in a manger as his throne, but whose scepter would be a cross and whose ultimate throne is now in heaven. If you look, you will see, and only then will you know what it truly is to give because you'll see God with us in Jesus and you will want to give yourself to him as he has given himself for us. May you have eyes to see in 2020.